Hey, Sammy? Yeah, hey, Pete. Yo, welcome my summer layer. I'm your host, Sammy. More prime time than hang time. You in. This will be another NBA episode, though not focusing so much on a team or even certain players, but rather the league itself. Journalist and writer Pete Corrado has written from hang time to prime time, business, entertainment, and the birth of the modern day NBA. This book is delicious. I consumed it whole like a python. In this My Summer Layer episode, Pete says, the goal for anything I write is to get to the person behind the job or behind the public facade. I might be able to get there for a little bit, and if I can get there, and I can show readers that side, to me, I've done a decent job. That dude, he's done more than a decent job. He's done an incredible job. This book definitely documents the corporate rise of the NBA, a league that initially wasn't popular, much less cool compared to the NFL and MLB. When you marry someone, you marry them for who they are, while you also marry them for who they'll become. The NBA is 75 years old, and many fans, such as myself, have been married to the association for decades. So let's look back so we can look ahead. Pete's book, From Hang Time to Prime Time, is like a high school yearbook. It focuses on the NBA's cultural transformation and growth, especially in the 70s and 80s. Though thankfully, like unlike a yearbook, there isn't that many bad hair photos. Uh, though I'm not... <laughs> I'm not sure how we should classify Commissioner David Stern's mustache. Kobe's sudden death was preceded by David Stern's death. Both of them died in January of 2020. Those two deaths formed fascinating bookends of the NBA that was and the NBA that is. On every tombstone, you get that dash between dates, but that dash can mean so, so much. That tiny dash signifies a life so it fails to convey the whole story. So let's start with those two significant bookends, Kobe Bryant and David Stern. Because we know Stern and we know Kobe. And we also know one of them is prime time and the other is hang time. You can decide which is which. Thank you so much for sending me the book, though. I, I know it does sound like I'm sucking up, but I really dug it, though. I thought it was really great. And I think any NBA fan oh, thanks, who kind of wants to see a little bit more of the old man behind the wizard, this is perfect for them. And especially because I know when David Stern passed about a year ago or so, or I, it was just, guess mm-hmm. it was just this year, but um, it, it was hard for people to put into context what he actually meant and did. Like when later when Kobe died, everyone kind of understood that and yeah. was able to articulate that. But David Stern, I was like, that's a huge loss. You guys understand. Even before I read your book, I was like, I know yeah. what the, some of what he did. And, like, you, you have to give respect to this man. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, I think, yeah, that's a really, that's a really good point. You know, I mean, Kobe really, really came up in the media age, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, especially in the, in, the latter, in the latter part of his life, I mean, everything, you know, he, he was chronicled on Twitter and Instagram. I mean, I mean, he was also very high profile. I mean, he had been, you know, he was a Oscar, Oscar winning uh, film producer. And with David Stern, I mean, he was very much, um, he, he kept a low profile. I mean, there wasn't a lot, he didn't really do a lot of interviews after his retirement in 2014. I mean, Chris Ballard wrote a really good piece on him in Sports Illustrated a couple of years ago that was very insightful and kind of um, 
kind of illuminated what David Stern had done, you know, was doing now. But in terms of his impact, you know, the NBA now is, is a league that's really all about the new. Mm-hmm. And you see this now, especially where the game moves so quickly in terms of media coverage. I mean, every, every highlight, every great play, I mean, I can get on my phone. I yeah. mean, it is just comes at you in waves. So there's, there's really not a lot of time for reflection, especially when that person, as Matisse and David Stern, was someone who started their career in the 1960s in the NBA and who came into prominence in the early 1980s. So, you know, he was almost, in a lot of ways, as a remote figure to a lot of people, especially since the, the way the game moves and its off-the-court machinations aren't really as big a deal as they were in the 70s and 80s when you had drug problems and the CBA was being disputed and all that good stuff. So, yeah, with Kobe Bryant dying, I mean, it, it really was, you know, he was so much a star of the new NBA. Uh, you know, he, he was, you know, he had been retired, but he was someone that was still very much in the current NBA fans' presence. And David Stern, not so much. David Stern was someone who just was, had kind of faded in the background. Adam Silver had really, had really, has really done a lot of good things for the league. You know, the, the Donald Sterling mm-hmm. suspension, or rather ex- exile, <laughs> mm-hmm. is probably, you know, he's probably still running on those fumes. And David Stern was somebody who was, you know, who I think knew who was going, who was moving on to the next part of his life. And it's a shame that he didn't get a chance to, to see it to, to its full fruition. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you look at Kobe and David Stern, they died the same year, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't know it. You know, you wouldn't know it because there was, there was so much more, there was so much more attention given to Kobe Bryant. And I know that's part of it with the circumstances. He died young, the way that he died, you know, in that horrible helicopter accident. But, you know, in terms of the impact, that both men had on the NBA that we see now, I would say they deserve just as much attention in terms of the role they played in, in sort of the NBA that we see now. Stern, uh, this is a tangent. We're going to get into your book and everything else. Uh, sorry, this was a, it's kind of a fun tangent. But Stern's passing yeah, to also it reminded me or it kind of was connected to the idea of how like fans generally don't have a strong opinion on most owners. You know what I mean? Unless they're like terrible, like yeah. a Sterling or something like that, or they're running the team into yeah. the ground or making really bad contracts or th- trades or things like that. They generally don't have or even really know who most of these owners are. You know what I mean? Like, so and it's kind of yeah. the same thing, but like they're obviously doing something because they're keeping the lights on, they're signing players. They're like the owners have, uh, or I guess they're governors now, but the owners have a role to play. And so whether you like them or not, like they're there and they're doing something. And I don't think people fully understand what it is that they're doing day to day. No. And I think that's, I think that's a good thing. I think if you know a lot about your owner, it's either because they're doing a bang up job or they're, or they're a a force of personality like a Mark Cuban or a Steve Ballmer, Mm -hmm. or or as you said, they're doing something terrible. Like they're just, you know, they're just, they're like, they're a Ted Stepien type or, um, you know, or, or a Jerry Jones type. type. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it the, the the NBA now is, you know, again, the, you know, and, I, I, and this is mentioned in the book, you know, I, or rather I discuss this pretty, pretty intensely in the book. The NBA is now so much about personalities and so much about entertainment that it, it's almost, the way that I can, I can explain it, it's almost like, it's almost very much a Hollywood production 
where we may know who uh, Michael B. Jordan is or Emma Stone or um, Olivia Wilde or, or name any other hot young star director, but we don't know their agents. We don't really know a lot about the studio heads unless yeah. they're Harvey Weinstein or, or someone who has that sort of scandalous, awful uh, backstory. And, and I would say that the NBA is the same way. You know, they're both billion-dollar industries. They both have international appeal, and they both run on the, on the, on the star system. So the same way that, you know, if, if you're a Hollywood insider, if you're somebody who reads, like, Variety and The Wrap and, you know, all these dishy um, trade magazines and, and, uh, and, and websites, you might know who the main players are. But most, most of you, know, you might know what the grosses are and, and what, how much the movies are making. And it's the same thing with the NBA. If you're so, unless you're somebody who like devours, you know, uh, you know, woes and shams and, and you know all the insidery stuff. Bobby Marks. Yeah, that you get from bloggers and you and you get from you know columnists. You're just you're gonna just sit back and enjoy the show. Mm-hmm. And that's a big difference from the NBA in the, in the 70s and 80s, where where all most people knew was the off the court stuff. And it's kind of, it's sort of funny now how the NBA is really this, I I mean, that's an inadvertent point that you brought up, but it really is a lot like Hollywood, I think, where it's just, it's all about the show and it's all about the the stars and, and the people that are, that you see, you know, every night. And you don't really know as much about the people that are bankrolling these, these productions, so to speak. So speaking with what you're talking about, like, which I guess, quote unquote, is fashion, being fashionable. And yeah. getting to know mm-hmm. some of these people who are involved in the NBA. In late October, uh, you published a GQ interview with Raptors head coach Nick Nurse. And in the interview, yeah. you guys were discussing jazz, uh, specifically Thelonious Monk. And Nurse recommended to you Solo Monk, Monk's eighth album, uh, which came on 65. Yeah. So I can understand you've been busy doing promotion for your book. But have you done Nick Nurse's jazz homework yet? <laughs> no, I haven't done Nick Nurse's jazz homework. I- I've been very busy. Um, I've been very bu- busy uh, plugging this book mm-hmm. within an inch of its life. <laughs> it's been it's been a whole. Um, no, I haven't had a chance to sit back and 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 listen to anything. I mean, I'm also the I'm also the uh, the father of a, of a four year old. So the only albums I'm listening to, I'm listening to in depth at this point are probably you know Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood okay. and Sesame Street mm-hmm. classics from the 70s and 80s. So um, if if you want to talk about uh, you know um, Daniel, Daniel Tiger tracks on you know on uh, on making mistakes and your emotions, I'm happy to talk about that. <laughs> but I, I can't. I'm, I'm afraid I can't go full uh, full depth into. Um, into Thelonious Monk's approach on the piano. So uh, maybe maybe in a year we can, we can talk about that. Yeah, no, it's fine because I also, like, I'm grateful the Raptors left for Tampa Bay because I've had Nick Nurse's book uh, on my nightstand for a couple of months now. And I go to games, and so I get to avoid that eye contact, right? Not that they allow fans anymore in the building, but if there were, like, you know, it's that awkward moment where, like, I haven't done Nick Nurse's homework either. Like, so don't feel bad. We're, uh, you and I are, like, a good company. <laughs> No, I know it's it, that's a, and that's a good book. I mean, that Nick 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 Nurse's book is is very good, especially I mean, having read a lot of coaches' biographies mm-hmm. or sorry, coaches' memoirs or memoirs of current players, they're they're always written in the same way. There's always this inspirational bent, and you know, I I worked real hard and I I put the practice in. And there really isn't you really don't get a sense of who the person is behind the project. 
and with with Nick Nurse's book, that's not the case. I thought it was a really well observed and surprisingly honest piece of piece of writing. And you know, I was happy to talk to Nick Nurse for that interview. And you know, even in the interview, he wasn't as guarded as a lot of um, I think coaches and players are. If you if you talk to them, you know, as as a beat reporter or just during the season, and maybe part of it was because I was talking to him. The Raptor season had, had wrapped up. Uh, you know, he was at home. He was in his home office eating potato chips and, you know, drinking a, drinking a seltzer, I think. So he was in a very relaxed environment, and I wasn't necessarily talking to him about the season. I wasn't talking to him about, hey, you know, what was it like being without Kawhi or mm-hmm. couldn't, you know, couldn't defend the championship. I mean, I wasn't really asking him straight-up basketball questions. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, that was a pleasure. And it's, it's always fun to, to do stories like that because – the goal of anything that I write is to get to the person behind the behind the job or behind the public facade. Um, I might be able to get there for a little bit, uh, but if I can get there and I can show readers that side, I'm, to me, I, I've done a decent job. Yeah. So you you have Nick Nurse homework, and I got Nick Nurse homework. So. Uh, we both have uh, work to do, so <laughs> we'll have to wrap this up. <laughs> but we got to talk about your book, obviously. Uh, so it's your first book, so congratulations yeah. on that. It's called From Thank Hang you. Time to Prime Time, Business, Entertainment, and the Birth mm-hmm. of the Modern Day MBA. So reading this book, the metaphor I was thinking of is happy days. So from the late 70s and yes. even into the early 80s, the NBA, especially before the merger, was like basically Richie Cunningham. Right. Other sports were like baseball and yeah. football were Fonzie cool. So your book, Hang Time to Prime Time, is about how the NBA got cool. It's no longer Richie Cunningham. Is that an accurate yet dated metaphor? <laughs> Tell you what, I never I grew up watching Happy Day, Happy Days reruns. So I, I do I do like that comparison. No, I mean, I, I wouldn't even say that to go even deeper into Happy Days um the happy days comparison, which is a very good comparison, by the way. Thank you. Uh, I would even say that the, the NBA was almost like Chuck Cunningham. Do you remember Chuck Cunningham? Oh, yes. He was, he, like, he, he was in, I think he was in one, he was in the first season. He was Richie Cunningham's older brother. Mm-hmm, yeah. he, he, was in there, he was there for one season, and then he was just, he was just excised from the show. <laughs> so I think the NBA was almost like, was almost like Chuck Cunningham. You know, just this thing that was there. You paid attention to it every once in a while, and then you know, through through hard work and some ingenuity, it became it became Fonzie. But I, the thing with the comparison, I make one exception to comparison is that with the NBA, Fonzie always changes. You know, Fonzie yeah. is Fonzie could be you know Fonzie in the eighties or in the in the late seventies was, was Dr. J, and then it was. Uh, you know, then it was Magic and Larry, and then it was Michael Jordan, and then it was, you know, LeBron, Kobe and LeBron James and Steph Curry, and now Giannis. So, so Happy Day, the Happy Days comparison is extremely apt, but I think it, it, it works better if if Henry Winkler was, was, was gone in season four and was replaced with, I don't know, um, Robin Williams, Tom Hanks, or you know, or, or some other, you know, up-and-coming up star. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just the rotating Fonzies of cool. Multiple Fonzies. But that's a really good comparison. And, yeah, the, the show was, uh, you know, that show was on for a long time, I think 10 years. But it's, but it's funny, too, in Happy Days, like you bring that up. I don't think people, and it's kind of, it's kind of similar to the NBA of, of yore, like the 70s and 80s. 
I think if you bring up Happy Days to somebody who is 10 to 15 years younger than I am, I'm 43, mm-hmm. I think they would look at you, they would look at me, pardon me, like I had two heads, like Happy Days, what the hell is that? Happy <laughs> Days? Like, was that the show with the, the jukebox in the yeah. 50s? But at the time, it was such a big deal. And it's so funny now how if you look at Happy Days in a, in a, historic, in a television history kind of way, it's such an important show because it was, it, it really kind of made syndication a big deal. I mean, Happy Days, I think, was the first big time syndicated show. It made a, a crazy amount of money when I think WPIX picked it up in 81 or 82. And the show also was a cultural institution. I mean, Fonzie's jacket was in the Smithsonian. I mean, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of the same thing now about the NBA. I mean, if you, if you talk to people who are in their 20s now, you can talk about Michael Jordan. They, they know him more as a cultural icon, like Fonzie's jacket, like the Nike shoes, Space Jam. Those are they're artifacts more than they, they, they know that they know Michael Jordan more as artifacts and as, you know, pop cultural totems than as a person who has such an impact, you know, on the game they love and enjoy. So the Happy Days, so I'm, I'm sure I'm torturing listeners by comparing a Gary Marshall created show. <laughs> I started is, it, though. You know, 30 yeah, well, you started it, but, you know, <laughs> so that's a really good comparison because Happy Days has sort of gotten forgotten with each passing year as, you know, shows come and go. And the NBA with Dr. J and Michael Jordan and Larry Bird and Mac Johnson and even David Stern, they're kind of they're getting a little bit forgotten, too. And that kind of just shows you how quickly pop culture and, our, and entertainment moves on. You know, it's it, it, and, it, and it's, it's a weird thing, too, because I'm, I was thinking about this just the other day. You know, we're all talking about Steph Curry's comeback. Steph Curry was the MVP two years ago, three years ago, like. You know, he he won three championships in four in five years. Like, mm-hmm. he, and we're talking about him like he's George Mikan, like, or yes. that he's like some you know, reclamation project. But no, like he's still he's still a great player. He's still a Hall of Famer, a first ballot Hall of Famer. And it's amazing to me how how quickly we forget greatness and how quick we are to move on to the next great thing. And I guess I don't know if that's just the way things are now, or if we just have short attention spans. Or if, you know, it's just, just the way it's always been, and I'm now just waking up to it. The comparison of what you're talking about is Charles Barkley on TNT. He's celebrating the 20th year now yeah. uh, being on TNT. And, right. And I, I, I never saw him play live, but obviously I saw him playing 76ers. I even remember him on the Rockets, those that Suns games against Jordan, the Bulls in the finals. Like, I remember mm-hmm. those pivotal moments. So I consider him a player. But there are entire kids now who just think of Barkley as like Ernie Johnson, like a TV guy, <laughs> right? No, you're absolutely right. And they you're probably have never right. looked him up on YouTube gonna, or anything. And the same thing's going to happen to Shaq. Like, it's crazy. I mean, Shaq retired like seven years ago, and seven or eight years ago. And he had a long, he had a long career. I mean, he was, he was the most popular player in the world for, you know, a two, three-year span. And there are going to be people that don't, that don't remember Shaq as a player. They'll remember him as a gregarious bubbly, um, you know, really charitable guy. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's crazy to me because I, mean, I grew up, I mean, when, Shaq, when Shaq was a rookie in 1992, it was huge. He came out as a fully-fledged pop culture media personality. Like, he had endorsements, he had toys, you know, he had sneakers. I mean, he, was, he came out before his first game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
he was a fully fledged, like he was a, a, a full syner- synergistic beast. Mm-hmm. And now, and it's, it's so crazy. Like they're, they're, they're going to be, you know, boys and girls who, who watch him now, they get older and they're going to know him as being Charles Barkley's sidekick. And that's crazy to me because he was such a, a popular play, but he was so good. I mean, Shaq's footwork was just insane. I mean, watching him play, even and if you go and you watch the YouTube highlights, nobody who's that big and that strong should be that quick. Nobody should be able to drop step and spin off the blocks that quickly. He was a freak of nature. And I'm just thrilled that a lot of his highlights are on YouTube because I get to relive them, even though like he tortured me as a, as a Knicks fan. Yes. But – but but kids but but like people who are like in their twenties or thirties are going to be able to go back and just see how good he was. And the same with Charles Barkley. There are YouTube YouTube clips everywhere, and I watch them. And because you know because I'm a basketball junkie and I have nothing better to do, you know, at eleven o'clock on a Tuesday than watch like old YouTube clips because like that's that's how I roll. But yeah, thankfully there is a video component now that 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 allows us to keep a permanent record of, of great players. And the, the sad part about that is, is that there are going to be some players who came out before those guys, like Oscar Robertson, Will Chamberlain, um, you know, Bill Russell, where you, where those highlights aren't as easily accessible. So I don't know. I, I just hope I, I, my hope is that players like those, like those players, like the great, the greats of the fifties and sixties and seventies, my hope is that somehow their footage is preserved and that kids that are interested in basketball and want to know more about the basketball history can read a book like this book or read, you know, second win by, by Bill Russell or when, or, or read Oscar Robertson's autobiography, which are both excellent. All three are excellent, I should say, but then go, but then go into YouTube and do a deep dive and see how those guys play. I hope that there is a, a literary and a video a liter, a liter, I'm sorry, I hope there's a video component to go with a literary component, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, because the box score doesn't always reflect everything, right? Like, the box score doesn't give you hustle, right? right? Like, what Dennis Rodman, for example, right. another old-timey player that I don't think a lot of people recognize how great he was, yeah. that hustle and that way he was diving for the balls and, like, tapping, 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 finally, like, doing that volleyball thing and finally pulling the rebound down. You you don't mm-hmm, get those mm-hmm. ref, you don't get that reflected in the box score. It just says he got eleven rebounds that night, but that doesn't really tell you the story. No, it doesn't. You're absolutely you're you're absolutely right, Sam. I mean, and that and that's the, that's another thing too is that you know it also it helps to inform the debate. You know, this is whole old school new school debate, and someone might say, well, you know, Andre Drummond's a better rebounder than than Dennis, than Dennis Rodman because of you know the stats. I, I'm at, I'm on Basketball Reference. And, oh, yeah, I mean, these are the numbers. Well, you're right. It doesn't show Dennis Rodman's ability to disrupt a game. You know, it doesn't show Dennis Rodman's ability as a positional defender. He, I mean, he was an outstanding defender, especially Detroit, Detroit mm-hmm. because he, he, was, he was just a live wire who frustrated anybody he played against. He played against. So the video does add that dimension to the debate. I'm hoping that'll – I'm hoping the footage will help diffuse this whole, you know, who's better Jordan LeBron debate, which I think is just inane. Um, but I, you know, but I do hope that that, that footage does, you know, again, you know, inform and educate 
you know, younger, younger viewers of, of the game, including myself. Cause I mean, there's, you know, I, I don't consider myself to be an expert by any means. I'm somebody who just loves basketball and, you know, has read a, a, um, too many books, uh, probably an inadvisable number of books on, on the NBA, but, you know, but I'm always hungry for more. And I think that's the beautiful thing about YouTube is that for, for, for basketball fans of all ages, you get, you get a reminder of how great a player was. You get you get an education, or you just you, you just are able to kind of dip back into into nostalgia, and you know th- those are those are all good things. So it's interesting you're you're focused on the video component of the NBA because my understanding is that when you graduated from journalism, which I believe was from Columbia, your goal wasn't the NBA but movies. No. <laughs> Where did you go? No, I was I graduated I graduated from the College of New Jersey. College um, of New Jersey, sorry. Which is in New, which is in Central New Jersey. No, no problem. It's a it's a great journalism program. I mean, I would compare it to the Columbia's and Missouri's of the world. It okay. was a really it's a very small program, but I had great teachers there, Bob Cole, Tim Pearson, Joe Carney, Barry Novick, great professors who were um, absolutely who were absolutely instrumental in helping me become a better writer. And they also gave gave all the students there, individual attention. So, yeah, I graduated in 2000. I graduated during the last dying days of the newspaper business, like right, right when it was, right when it was, when it was starting to go to seed. So yeah, so was wasn't your original plan to become like Roger Ebert 2.0, basically, like like focus on movies? Yeah, yeah, that was my plan. My plan was to. They're very good. You did your homework. I appreciate that. Um, Sometimes I do. <laughs> <laughs> one of my first books that I fell in love with, one of the first writers I fell, who I fell in love with was Roger Ebert. And that was when I was 12 years old. And at that point, I wanted to be a movie, a movie reviewer. Roger Ebert inspired me to, after reading Roger Ebert, that was my career goal. And I took all the right steps to become a movie reviewer. I watched a lot of movies. I reviewed movies for the school, from you know, for my high school paper, for the college paper, did all that stuff. And when I graduated in 2000, uh, as I said, it was the last days of probably the newspaper business being robust. Um, when I graduated, but when I graduated, the, the internet was just starting to take over, especially with film, with, with film criticism. And I walked into a situation where newspapers were, were dying and there really wasn't a way for someone like me to kind of work the ropes up to being a newspaper's film reviewer because those jobs didn't exist anymore. And the jobs that were available were either very low paying, especially online, or they were divvied up among, and this is still true to this day, among, I would say, two or three dozen exceptional movie reviewers. So it was really hard for me to get a niche in, in, in that field. So, yeah, I mean, I, I reviewed movies for a long time until I figured out that, you know what, A, I'm not really enjoying this as much as I, as much as I, I used to. And B, I'm getting paid squat. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it, it was, it was really, I, I'm hoping things have changed. I suspect they haven't, but I once did the math for what I made as a movie reviewer during a month. This is in 2014 when I stopped doing re- reviews, with the passion that I was previously. And I think I was making like $2 and 35 cents an hour. It was wow. some ridiculously low number. And when I saw that, I thought, you know what? Like 
it's time to change course and maybe go more into sports writing and go more into writing that I enjoy, but is also, you know, profitable. Yeah, your your movie blog, What's Pete's Watching, it closes, your final post on it was, um, this was never just a movie blog. The signs were er, ob- <laughs> the signs were obvious early on, and you said you add yeah. on uh, as I write more stories about sports, a lovely unanticipated development. By the way, maintaining a straight up movie blog mm-hmm. seems well a bit silly. So, what was the uh, anticipated lovely antis- unanticipated development uh, of writing about sports that kind of came into your life? Because this is how we're going to end up with Marvin Gaye in the national anthem, right? Yeah, no, that's a really good. Yeah, that's an absolute, That's a really good question. Um, no, I. I got into sports writing almost by accident. Um, you know, I'd done a little bit of it, but we yeah, had the piece I wrote for Grantland about Marvin Gaye and the National Anthem. That was the first, that kind of started everything. That started the new, that started a new direction with sports writing. I had pitched this almost on a whim to Sarah Larimer at Grantland. I'd gotten her email address through Michael Weinreb. Grantland was so good, writer. by the way. Just a moment of respect for Grant. Just a moment of respect for Grantland. It was such a good publication. I really enjoyed the writing on it. Oh, it was, it was amazing. So I, I, so yeah. And again, I, I emailed this pitch. I emailed this pitch about Marvin Gaye and the national anthem, and it was. It, I, I, oh, I came across the the pitch letter a few a few years ago, and it was just embarrassing. Like I had no qualifications to be writing for Grantland, <laughs> which at that time. You know, it was such a great site, but a big part of it was because of the people who wrote for that site. You know, Charlie Pierce was writing for Grantland. You know, Colson Whitehead covered the World Series of Poker for Grantland. Chris Jones, who was an exceptional profile writer for uh, Esquire, was covering the American League East for Grantland. So I'm writing this, so I'm, I'm proposing this feature for Grantland, thinking to myself, there's no friggin' way I'm going to get this assignment because look home up again. The talent pool there was so deep. And I, lo and behold, I got the assignment. I was shocked. And I wrote the assignment, and that, and that, I think it turned out really well. And I was really pleased with it. And that started, that kind of got me on the track to writing about sports and pop culture. Because, you know, I, I found out two things. I found out, A, I enjoyed writing about sports, which I never thought I would. And B, I figured that I had an avenue here writing about sports in a, in a historic and um, I'm sorry, in an historical or uh, pop culture kind of way. So that Grantland piece really started everything. And that's, and that's what I meant in that blog post about the unanticipated development, because that piece, writing that, writing that Grantland story, opened the door to pitch stories at Philadelphia Magazine, at Slam, um, at publications that really probably I wouldn't have paid much mind to, you know, two or three years before um, – you know, I, I kind of dug deep into Marvin. So just to give people context, the this was Marvin Gaye singing the national anthem at the 1983 NBA All-Star Game. Again, like mm-hmm. you and I were talking about the past before. Like, I don't think people fully understand, like, until recently, it's like January 28, 1990, the Super Bowl halftime show was still a marching band, right? <laughs> it wasn't until yeah. uh, January 31, 93, when Michael Jackson did like actual, like an actual superstar, performed actual hits like Billie Jean that people knew. And that's 10 years after Marvin Gaye uh, in 83. Yeah. How did Marvin yeah. Gaye singing the national anthem become like the spark for your book? Well, that's, uh, that's another good question. I mean, it, it came, what came across in the reporting for the, for the book, I'm sorry, the book, the, the, the Grantland story, there were two things. Well, the first thing was, A, how big that anthem was, just how amazing that anthem was. 
and how um, just people were blown away by it. And the other thing that came across was that it really marked a, a turning point for the NBA in terms of how it was going to proceed. You know, that anthem was not planned. It wasn't as if Marvin Gaye and Gordon Banks, his, his guitarist and band leader, sat down with the Lakers or the NBA and said, okay, we're going to do the anthem this way. We're going to do it differently. There, it wasn't, it wasn't, no one knew, it wasn't planned. There was mm-hmm. no game plan for this. So with Marvin Gaye's anthem, it, it was an inadvertent and accidental turning point for the NBA. And here's why. Because here's Marvin Gaye singing this non-traditional anthem, this anthem that is very much steeped in, in several genres of music. You could, you could argue that there's elements of gospel in it. Uh, there's, it's R&B for sure. There's even elements of, of rap with the, with the singing over a pre-recorded beat. So you have this non-traditional, entertaining version of the NBA that is sung by Marvin Gaye, who is a Motown legend, who is this, again, obviously everyone who sees it, this black man, this black icon, singing this anthem in Los Angeles or you know a few miles away from Los Angeles. But the anthem is representative of what is on the floor, which is an entertaining entertaining, freewheeling, creative game played by black men. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was not an anthem that represented the, this sort of half-faith idea of what American sports and leisure is with, you know, you know, with, 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 you know, with, you know, with, um, with, with a big sweeping anthem that represents, you know, sports and America and all these, you know, all these, you know, star-spangled, awesome uh, concepts that we get when we, when we hear a national anthem at a, at a Super Bowl or, or, a ball, or a ball game. That anthem marked the beginning of the NBA embracing what it really was. Was it? And it was an anthem that wasn't, I'm sorry, and it was a, a league that wasn't going to be defined by tradition. It wasn't going to be defined by what college football, pro football, and baseball did. It was going to go its own way. So it was an, it was an accidental admission of what the NBA was going to do. And if you look at what happened after that anthem, 1984 of All-Star Game Weekend was the slam dunk contest and the old-timers game. After, the, after that, you have um, the three-point shootout in 86 that comes into play. And you also have the NBA All-Star Game Weekend becoming this full-fledged entertainment spectacle. You know, it took a little while to get there with you know celebrities and halftime acts and really it, it became all about it became all about spectacle more so than the game so gay's anthem i really think marked the turning point of the nba becoming the nba that we know today yeah well one of the things too like when we were talking about david stern is like as nba fans or sports journalists will discuss the quote-unquote miami heat culture right that's a big buzzword you see nowadays yeah or the Golden State Warriors mm-hmm. championship DNA. That's another phrase we see a lot. Yeah. Uh, but reading your book, mm-hmm. it never occurred to me, and this might seem dense on my part, but it never occurred to me that the NBA as an organization had a similar culture, which according to your book, based on the yeah. interviews uh, you conducted, was firmly established by David Stern. Yeah. No, absolutely. That, that culture was – that's a good, that's a good point. That cult, Yeah, it was very much a culture of, of we're not going to do it this way. I mean, David Stern – hated to hear if the reason why something wasn't done was because this is the way you've always done it. 
he hated to hear that. He hated it. Um, Judy Shoemaker told me a story that um, she was she was with the NBA Properties for years. She, uh, the story didn't make the book, but she at one point like she was hesitant about mentioning an idea to David Stern. She thought it was too it was too big, too bold, too fancy, and she she mentioned it like in passing to him. And David Stern jumped up up jumped on the idea. He loved it, and he said, you know, he said to her after the fact, like, look, Judy, you know, anytime you have an idea like that, like bring it, bring the idea. And that was the, and that was the NBA's modus operandi. It was always going to be about experimentation. It was always going to be about doing something new. Even when the NBA had gotten out of its goosey-goosey stage in the 1990s, Rick Welts, who then was heading NBA properties, his big mantra was, every, eight, every 18 months, we need to reinvent the NBA. That has remained true to this day. Mm-hmm. Because I think the NBA's tradition is, and this is, this is made to me by a guy named Joe Cullen, who created MSG Network, and it's true, the NBA tradition is that it has no tradition. There, there really isn't, you know, if the NBA, and I think you see this with, with the bubble, the NBA going to the bubble was marked as a sign of ingenuity. It was marked as a sign of, hey, you know, really focusing on player safety and, and NBA employee safety. But there really wasn't that much of a stink brought about it because the NBA has always done that kind of open mind, has always had that open-minded thinking that kind of combines good optics with good business sense. And, you know, the NFL and, and Major League Baseball sticking to the same old, same old of we have to have away games, we have to have home games, that struck me as being very traditional and struck me as, and struck me as being very very much in line with, with what the NFL and the Major League Baseball has always done. Similarly, the NBA going with the bubble was the same way. It was the same tradition of it – was, it, was it was a tradition in the sense of we're going to do things differently. Like there's a solution, we're going to try it out, and we're not going to adhere to this is how we've always done it. So that's something that has always – that has always sort of been in the NBA's ethos, this, this ethos of, you know what, like, if this works, we're going to try it. And, you know, to the NBA's credit, I, I think they're able to do that because I think they have sort of become the league that has always sort of been very um, open to new ideas and isn't afraid to try something new and isn't afraid to listen to its players and listen to its fans and you know, give them what they want. Um, as for why they're playing home games and away games now, I think it's a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. But at least for you know, at least for a few months in the summer, they they were doing things in a different way. There's a, another pivotal moment too in terms of Stern, and it's a small moment, but it really sums them up. Uh, just kind of carry on what you're saying. Where I can't remember who it was mm-hmm. in the book. But there was a, a game had finished was playing at Madison Square Garden and the credits were rolling for the who the cameramen were and all that <laughs> stuff and it, you met, you know this moment I'm yeah. talking about right and uh, the TV credits yeah. were rolling I- over um, it was in Madison Square Garden and there was empty seats the, everyone had left it, the game was over mm-hmm. and Stern called up who yeah. was it the CBS executive and just yelled at them for showing empty seats yeah it was Ted Baker yeah it was it was an af- it was a Saturday afternoon game um, at a playoff game at Madison Square Garden and it was on CBS. So uh, David Stern was, was, as always, was watching television coverage, keeping an eye out for all that, for all for all the things that would uh, irk him. And he noticed that as CBS was concluding its broadcast of that Knicks game, 
says the CBS is showing empty seats. And almost immediately, David Stern calls Ted Shaker, who is the executive producer of uh, the NBA and CBS, and just lays into Ted. You know, Ted was at his office working Saturday afternoon. Phones ringing. Ted's like, who the hell is calling me? It's, two o'clock. it's 3 o'clock on a Saturday. And it's David Stern. And David Stern's immediate greeting was, why the hell are we showing empty seats? What the hell is this? And and Ted Shaker was like, well, you know, the game's over, David. You know, it's, he says, you know, you know, how do you do this? Look for the NBA, Ted. Well, not good with all those empty seats. Right, don't do it again. Click. And that was David Stern. David Stern was always about optics. He was mm-hmm. always, before optics was a thing, he was always about how the NBA was perceived. And I think that is something that has carried on because who, what, who was David Stern's right-hand man for all those years in the NBA? It was, it was Adam Silver. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Adam Silver had, you know, a good, you know, before he took over as commissioner, he was at the NBA for 22 years. And his dad was, was with the NBA for a number of years. Ed Silver, I believe. So, so, there was, so there was, so that history of that germ of how the NBA looked, how we're perceived, how do we react to that? And how do we react to that as quickly as possible? That is very much a David Stern idea that I believe Adam Silver has carried with him as commissioner. Correct. There's a number of people in your book. Actually, even on page 323, you have a fascinating list of some of the 300 people you interviewed for this book. You don't generally see a list like this mm-hmm. for a nonfiction book. I thought that was really neat yeah. to see that. So I, I want to do a uh, kind of like a quick little lightning round, and I just want to list off about four or five people on that list. And if you just want to share a moment you had with them or a story or an insight that they gave you, just whatever little bit, little tidbit or fun fact you want to share. I, 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 I love this idea. I love this. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm game. I'll, I'll, see, I'll see how my memory is. Go, <laughs> go ahead. Go All for right. It. We got to start with the classic Hubie Brown. High percentage shots. Hubie Brown. Hubie Brown, plenty of time here now. No, Hubie, Gra- Hubie Brown was, was great. Hubie Brown was was amazing. I I spoke to I spoke to Hubie for an hour and a half. Wow! And he was he was absolutely incredible. I could have written a whole chapter on Hubie Brown. That he dude needs a book. Insightful. Yeah, he was that insightful. He was that entertaining. I could have spent three hours with Hubie Brown. Look, I am, I've said this repeatedly, I'm a nobody. I'm not like a big NBA swinging dick in terms of <laughs> editorial covers. Like I'm not Jackie McMullen. I'm not Woj. I'm not Jay Adande. I'm none of those people. But for Hubie, so for Hubie Brown to spend that much time talking to me was an absolute thrill. It's, it's one of the, it's one of my, Favorite mo- favorite personal moments of the book is talking to Hubie Brown about basketball for you know for an hour and a half. I'm always happy when I start watching a game and Hubie's one of the commentators. I'm like, yeah, you learn stuff, oh. right? Like I walk away from oh, the game smarter. Great. Hubie Brown, because of Hubie Brown, I know never to leave my feet when passing the ball. Yep. Like I, that's a Hubie Brown, <laughs> a Hubie Brown tip I've learned from uh, from watching him for 30 years. Um. Yeah. Whenever Hubie Brown does a broadcast, I'm all in. When um, when Iron Eagle does a broadcast, I'm all in. When Mike Breen is doing Knicks mm-hmm. games, I'm all in. And Doris Burke, I love. I love Doris. Doris Burke. is great so too. I will, if, if Doris Burke is Doris Burke could be broadcasting a, a Scrabble tournament, and I'll 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 check it out. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. great. 
Uh, so let's continue with the lightning round. We'll go with David Falk. David Falk. Um, he was very hard to get a hold of. Um, took me a few months to get him on the phone. He called me out of the blue. Um, I think I was in the middle of making my lunch when he called. So I took the <laughs> phone call. I talked to him for about an hour. Uh, a little caustic because, you know, I think when you are, when you've represented Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing and every major name in the NBA, you're going to be a little, um, a little sharp and a little weary of who, wary of who you talk to. But David Falk was, um, was very, uh, was, was a very good interview. He, he has my favorite quote in the book when I mentioned, I was mentioning him about the, the Jordans and about the appeal of, of the Jordans. And I mentioned, I called them sneakers. And he said, he interrupted, he said, no, 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 no. When they're over $200, he called them shoes. They're shoes. So that's probably my favorite <laughs> quote of the book, just being zinged by David Fox, super agent. But he was, he was very good. Um, you know, and, and again, I think the one thing about this book that I found remarkable was there were very few people who were gruff or short with me or everyone was very giving of their time, very helpful. Um, there may have been one or two exceptions, but David Fox was not one of them. He was, he was, he was, he was excellent. I wish I could have talked to him more, but I was very happy for the 45 minutes that I got. He was, he was, uh, yeah, he, he was certainly an asset to the book. That continues our theme of like people that we don't fully realize, like what David Falk did, uh, especially for Jordan. It's kind of like, it's kind of fallen to the wayside a little bit. Like he won't fully ever get the recognition. No, no. I, you know, he, again, he was one of the first people who marketed NBA, who saw, a, who saw marketing NBA players as individuals. I mean, there's, there's an anecdote in, um, in David Halverson's excellent, um, excuse me, his excellent book on Michael Jordan, where Falk is talking, I think, I don't know who it was, someone at Nike, Rob Strasser, or one of the big wheels there. And Strasser, or one of the execs, says, hey, like, you're, you're, you're want to market like, him as a tennis player. And David Fox is like, yeah, it's exactly what we're doing. We want to market him as an individual. And yeah, again, as time goes on, you're right. So many of the, of the people in this book you know, you can even go as far back as Larry O'Brien. They, they were important people who have gotten neglected. Mm-hmm. And that's a shame because Larry O'Brien played a huge role in the NBA's ascendancy, David Falk. Um, there are so many people who have gotten lost to, I guess, the gears of time. And you're right. David Falk is certainly one of, it's certainly one of those men and women. All right. So we'll continue with the lightning round. We got to do with half of uh, Kid and Play. You talked to Play, Christopher Martin. How cool was that? I did talk to Christopher Martin. It was it was cool. He was very he was a good interview. I, I tried and tried and tried to get both of them. Couldn't do it. But yeah, Christopher Martin was 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 a really good guy. I got him through. And again, this is this is the value of talking to or trying to connect with as many people as you can. I got him through Patrick Reed, who is now uh, he's an, he's a historian at Marvel. And he's also a DJ and is big. He also worked at MTV Geek, I think. And he was very plugged into the rap community. So through um, through Patrick, who was amazing and is someone I consider, I think almost a friend at this point. He was just such a good dude. I was able to get some kid and play, but also MC Search. Yeah, um, that was, that's so dope. All right, we'll keep rolling yeah. with it. We'll drop another big name uh, that even maybe some of the kids don't know today, but they should. Bob Costas. Bob Costas. I got Bob Costas. Oh boy, through um, 
yeah, I, I interviewed, uh, this is the, again, this is the benefit of interviewing a crazy number of people is that you, you hope that they connect you to other people. And I interviewed John Walsh, who was uh, an executive producer, an executive producer of sports center at ESPN in the eighties and nineties and turned sports center into this big event. And John Walsh was great. And I asked him who else I could talk to. And he said, yeah, you know, let me, I connect you with Jack McMullen and Bob Costas. And Bob Costas was insane because I emailed him or called him. I don't remember which it was, but within like 20 minutes, he got back to me and said, wow. you know, Bob Costas, I can talk to you. Like I can talk to you this afternoon. Okay. Bob Costas person <laughs> I've grown up with, you know, I grew up with, sure. I'll talk to you now. Um, Bob Costas, um, a couple of notes. Bob Costas was, was, was so nice and so smooth. And it's a little, un, it's a little um, nerve wracking to talk to announcers, especially play by play people because they have great pipes and they mm. speak so fluidly and they speak with such grace. So talking to people like Dick Stockton and Brett Musburger and Leslie Visser and Leslie Visser was wonderful. She was the best, but talking to them was also was nerve wracking because they're so smooth. They talk for a living. Uh, as you can tell by the, by my, by the way I talk and my starts and my stops, I don't talk professionally for, for I don't talk professionally. I write professionally. Mm-hmm. I can write smoothly. I cannot talk smoothly. So, after we got that out of the way, Bob was great. Um, just a very, he's very much like you see on TV, eloquent, forthright, um, just just poured out of a scotch bottle, just really smooth <laughs> and, and silky with his delivery. But again, just extremely generous at this time and his insight. And that, and, and again, there, there were a few pinch me moments in this book where I'm talking to people that I've watched on my television for years and talking to Bob Costas was one of them for sure. And, you know, um, just, just a very, uh, again, I can't say enough, enough nice things about Bob Costas. All right. Two more names. And then that's the end of the lightning round. This is uh, a name that a lot of people may not know, but he's really pivotal, uh, pivotal in Jordan's camp. Howard H. White. Howard White. H. White. Yeah. He was, I got to him through, Oh, this is this is this is a kind of a maze. Howard H. I can call him because we're, we're tight. Um, <laughs> H. Um, I got you through through Mark Tomashell, and and I mentioned Mark in the book. He, Mark is a key figure in this book, even though I don't think anyone knows who he is. But I'll tell you the backstory. Um, Mark was a, a marketing executive at Nike for a number of years, and he was there in the in the eighties and nineties. And I reached out to him because I came across his name in a Michael Jordan biography called Taking to the Air by uh, Jim Naughton, which is an excellent Jordan biography. It's an excellent, excellent Jordan biography. I cannot recommend this book enough. Really well done. Really um, just just a great book that does a wonderful job painting um, Jordan's, painting a portrait of Jordan as a young star before the championships, before Space Jam, all that good stuff. So I read that book, and with all these books, I tried to highlight names of people I hadn't seen before, I hadn't heard of, so I could reach out to them and talk to them. One name that came out was Mark Tomashow. So I reached out to Mark Tomashow on LinkedIn, which I know sounds very fuddy-duddy, but it worked. Mark got back to me, and he said, look, you know, let's talk. I want to hear what this book is about. I want to get to know you. I said, okay. So we, we had a, a chat over FaceTime, and uh, Mark, after expressing – annoyance at my 
Walt Clyde Frazier Puma poster in the background because he's a <laughs> Nike guy through and through, even to this day. Mark like bleeds Nike. So Mark said, okay, you know what? I, I, I like what I'm hearing. This sounds like a good project. I'm happy to talk to you. And then he, then he said the magic words, which I didn't know how, how invaluable they would be. He said, you know, I have a pretty good batting average. I, I know a lot of people. Let me see who I can put you in contact with. Now, keep in mind, I had reached out to Nike before, and after Nike, I'm sorry, and after Michael Jordan had, had declined to comment for the book, the time to participate, Nike shut things down. Nike said, well, you know, we can't really talk if Michael says no. So I said, all right. So I'm thinking, all right, Mark, you know, sure. You know, Nike said no, thank you. Nike told me to scram, but if you want to try reaching out to people, go right ahead. So within like 30 minutes, you know, Mark has sent out a mass email to like, like, not to Phil Knight, but to, but to H, to George Gervin, to Steve Coonan, who's the CEO of the, of the Atlanta Hawks, but was a executive Coca-Cola during the NBA time that I'm writing about, to Bill Davenport, who co-wrote, who wrote, who created those Spike, those uh, Spike and Nike, um, Spike and Mike ads that ran. And it was just name after name after name. Um, Phil Knight, eventually I talked to him because, because of Mark's efforts. Um, so H was one of those, was one of those legion of people that I was able to reach out to because of Mark Tomashell. And we talked for about 45, 50 minutes and it was pretty good. I, I don't know if it was as good as it could have been because, you know, I think H has been talked to a whole bunch of times. I think he, he's still close to Michael. So he wasn't going to go full bore on what he knew about Michael about those times, mm-hmm. but it was extremely insightful. And I got a couple of good quotes out of out of H, and it was um, it was time well spent. So I don't reg- I don't regret that time, but with him talking to him, but it was more meaningful about that conversation that it came across because Mark Tomashow vouched for me. That's very kind. That's like the the mafia thing, right? We're like this dude's okay. He's not wearing a wire. <laughs> He's one of us, right? The Donnie Brasco thing. Yeah, but but Nike very much is a world unto itself, mm-hmm. and if you have somebody. Who, who, who says? Yeah, this guy is okay. This guy isn't like uh, isn't like a star fucker. He isn't somebody who is going to, you know, who who's, who's who wants to find out about what really happened. I think if you're genuine and if you're prepared, I think people will give you their time and their energy. But Mark went above and beyond. I mean, thanks to Mark, I talked to Tinker Hatfield for an hour and a half. Yeah, like that's that's not, that wasn't part of my game plan. I mean, Nike kind of cut the knees out for me when they said, well, no dice with, with access. Tinker was somebody I wanted to talk to, but thanks to Mark, he sent me with Tinker and Tinker was, was good to go. And he was very, he was great. I mean, the funny thing about Tinker, I mean, this is not part of your lightning round, but screw it. Like <laughs> Tinker was, you know, said, Oh yeah, you know, I'll give you my cell phone. Just if you could not give it out, that'd be great because like people will reach out to me and they're kind of weird. They're kind of like obsessed with me because like he's such he's such a you know he's so known as being like the Air Jordan guy mm-hmm. that I think he he kind of has created his own like weirdo strain of fandom. So I was like, yeah, Tinker, I'm not going to share your information <laughs> with anybody. Don't worry about it. Um, but yeah, but I'm sorry, it's a long-winded story about H. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, H is a bit of a ninja. That's why I was like, oh, you talk to him. So. Uh, last one for the lightning yeah. round. Uh, he's another classic coach, uh, similar to Hubie Brown, Pat Riley. Pat Riley, I got to him through the in the Grantland article, and that's one reason why I wanted to write this book. There was so much stuff 
about um, in that in that piece of reporting that I did for the for the Grantland story that didn't make the cut. And there was so much good stuff about Pat Riley. I think he's quoted once in the piece, and that's it. So I mean, I was very careful to save all of my interview transcripts, save all of my interview tape, and just go through it. And Pat Riley was a gold mine. So the Pat Riley quotes that are in that or in the book came across through the Grantland piece. That was, mm-hmm. it was unused material. Uh, same with Isaiah Thomas. Same with Marcus Johnson. Uh, same with uh, same with I'm trying to think who else. Uh, Rick Welch. A lot of that. A lot of unused stuff. I think I was able to get to Pat Riley because he was he's a diehard Marvin Gaye fan, and the story had nothing to do with basketball. It had nothing to do with the Lakers or the or the Showtime Dynasty. It was all very much about a topic that he could just dig into that wasn't about basketball. When I went back to the Heat a few years ago to, talk, to see about lining up an interview with, with Pat Riley, I was given, you know, Pat, you know, politely declined. And I think that's sort of the, the that's sort of the situation now with, with, with Riley is that, you know, unless you are Wright Thompson working on that Pat, on his Pat Riley piece, you talk to everybody in his life, and eventually you go back to Pat Riley, he won't talk to you. Or if you're going to write anything that's basketball related, Pat Riley is, is it would rather not talk but but i got very lucky with the grant one piece i got very very lucky in having pat riley talk to me and when i talked to him he was amazing because he had all of these you know observations about the game and about being listening to the anthem and about you know marvin gay's impact on his on his life i could not use it so that's the that's the lesson to, to journalists out there you know hold on to those tapes hold on to those to those transcripts because you never know what you're going to need. You'll never know what you'll, what you'll need it for. And thankfully um, for me, it was a book. So <laughs> I lucked out. And is that also too, like over the course of interviewing 300 people for this book and even starting with the Grantland piece, because you recently wrote for the writer, it's an article that says, shut the hell up, a beginner's guide to interviewing. And so were you able <laughs> then to like develop and hone your interviewing craft, I guess? Yes, and that's that's a, that's an outstanding question. Absolutely, I mean the, and you're doing a good job of that. I mean the well, thank you. The best thing an interviewer can do is just to shut the hell up, shut up, like you know, let the person speak. The person who speaks on the other side is usually going to fill fill the empty gaps for you, and the person who the person you're interviewing, if you listen closely enough, they will take the conversation in wonderful ways that you wouldn't anticipate. So interviewing 315 people um, for a book teaches you, or taught me, I should say, how to, how to listen. And it also taught me the value of, of the interview subjects. Like, I listened to the field for two reasons. First, I wanted to show you, I wanted to show readers the work. I wanted to show readers like, look, this is what I did to create the story. Like, this isn't opinion. This isn't me, like, extrapolating based on, like, 15 years of NBA entertainment videos that I watched and obsessed over. Like, I actually talked to the people who were involved in the NBA's rise to prominence. But looking back, I also put those names down because this is their story. You know, the people that I talked to, you know, and you mentioned some, you know, mentioned five of those names. But it's also the story. It's also the story of, the, of people like Barbara Ward, who was the secretary for the NBA back in the '80s. It was 
you know, Bill Marshall's story and Don Sperling's story and Don Sterling's story. It, there were so many people that were foot soldiers in in David Stern's quest uh, for the NBA's global rise. And it, it that and that quest meant so much to so many people because they loved working for David Stern. They loved working for the NBA, but also it came at a time in their life when they were young, they were hungry, they were starting out. So the NBA was almost like growing up in a family. And I want to make sure those people got the recognition they deserved because this is their story. And I was very, very lucky to be able to tell it. And I was very, very fortunate to be able to, to listen to those people's stories. And that to me was something that came across in doing all these interviews was there's a personal connection between an interviewer and the interviewee. And this is just my opinion. When I'm interviewing somebody, you know, they're giving me a little piece of their life. They're giving me their time. They're giving me their patience. They're giving me their, um, they're giving me a little bit of their, of their life story. It's important to have that in mind when you talk to somebody. You know, I'll, I'll never forget this. When, when I wrote obituaries like years ago, I remember listening to somebody for maybe 15 minutes talking to me about their husband who had died and about what a good man they were. And it wasn't germane to, the, to, the, to an obituary. I mean, it's an obituary. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I hooked the phone and then the person I was working with said, you know, you, you really don't need to listen to all that. You can just, you know, hang up the phone or just, you know, send them on their way. And I thought, what a terribly callous thing to say. Mm-hmm. Like, what a terribly impersonal, insensitive thing to say. This is somebody whose fucking husband just died. Like, the least you can do is make sure that you listen to them. And, and beyond getting the story right or getting this article right, I, I think it's important to make sure that there's another person on the end of the line who shows that they're, that they are, that they're listening and that they at least care. So that's something that really came into the forefront in the almost well over a year, well almost year of reporting and research that I did, is that I'm, I wasn't just putting things together to, to build a book, but I was talking to people whose experiences meant something to them, and I wanted to put a I wanted to put across that in the book, and I, I think the, the list of names was maybe another way to, to show my appreciation. You know, it was, it was it was accidental, but I'm glad I did because I want those people to, to get some recognition. Yeah, the equivalent of what you're talking about, man, you just mentioned it, was the NBA bubble. Adam Silver gets a lot of credit for the yeah. NBA bubble. And yes, obviously he initiated and things like that. But there was an army of people putting this together, making sure that there yeah. was laundry machines, making sure there was detergent, making sure like every little aspect of an NBA organization needs to be replicated inside this bubble. And I don't think people fully mm-hmm. grasp, like, if you just watch the games or whatever, like, I don't think people fully grasp how enormous this situation was. And it wasn't just, like, Adam Silver came up and was like, oh, okay, we're going to do an NBA bubble and put it together over a weekend. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's a raft of people yeah. who put this together. And those names always don't yeah. get recognized or um, acknowledged, right, in no, terms absolutely, of their work. You're absolutely right. You know, especially, especially now because, like, we want, we want to be entertained immediately. And we don't think that there's a whole infrastructure of people making that work. You're, and you're absolutely right. It's not like we're all organizing a last minute barbecue, you know, <laughs> where it's like, oh, Tony and Cindy and, and make sure that everyone's like 
oh, who's gonna who's gonna bring the soda? Who's bringing the beer? Like, no, <laughs> this is a mass, a mass. Yeah, and now it just involves NBA personnel who we're never gonna know because it's you know like they're working in an office or they're in Orlando or wherever. But it's also like the maids, the cooks, you know, all, you know the the cleaning people, all the men and women that made that hum. You know, it, it's their job too. And you know, someone made a criticism about the book that kind of irked me. But like, oh well, you know, he didn't. I didn't have access to David Stern and Larry Bird and and all those names. And part of me feels like saying, well, who the fuck cares? Like, we all know what they did. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean. You and I can recommend, you know, 15 books, you know, a thousand magazine articles, five blog posts, you know, and a greeting card that tells you all. <laughs> to me, the people that made the NBA go are the folks that you don't really know about, that you maybe have heard about every once in a while in a, in a, in a story or someone brings them up, you know, in a, in a, in a comment. There are so many people that made, that made the NBA run. And even to this day. And you only maybe hear about them when, unfortunately, they die or they retire because they're not part of the, as I said earlier, they're not part of the show. They're not part of the, they're not, they're not sexy. You know, like Matt Winnick was like the schedule maker of the NBA for, you know, 45 years. He was, he was, you know, he was an institution there. He was there during the time of Larry O'Brien and, you know, had all sorts of great stories to tell, but like, you know, the only time that when it really came up was when he retired, like a couple of years ago. But there are so many people like that who are working diligently and making sure the buses really do run on time on All-Star Game Weekend. Those men and women don't get their due. And, you know, it's not because they're not doing a great job. I'm sure they are. But it's because the NBA has become so big and it's such a star-driven enterprise that they're not given their due. And... You know, and the bubble's a perfect example of that. You know, there's there's so many people that made that thing run, and it's not just Adam Silver. I mean, it's it's a legion of people working behind him and under him and in front of him to make sure that everything went great. There's a reason why when you go see like a Marvel movie, there's ten minutes of credits, right? Because there's a lot yeah, of people who absolutely. made that movie. But all we tend to focus on or all we talk about. Is Robert Downey Jr. or Kevin Feige or like a couple of people, right? But it's like it's ten minutes of credit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're we're a star-driven culture. We're a star-driven culture, and even to this day, like we're we're a star-driven culture, and we have very very short memories. So you put those two things together, and there isn't going to be a lot of attention paid to the people that handle the day-to-day, um, the day-to-day nitty-gritty stuff that made the NBA go, even now. And you're right. I mean, cred- the credit for a Marvel movie goes on literally for 10 minutes, so much so that there is an end credit sequence, or rather a, post- a post-credit taste that you get to sort of reward yourself for sitting through that. Mm-hmm. You're right. It, it is... We-, we tend to think that, oh, well, Adam Silver is doing a great job. And he is. But he's doing a great job because of the people that he that he that he works with, and I'm sure Adam Silver has cited them and credited them. But we're a culture that doesn't really care. You know, we we care about the star. We don't care about what makes the star glow. And uh, you know, and I think there's a there's a a place for books like this and future books because 
you need to give those people their due. And the people that I, I enjoy talking to the most for this book and who I, who I who inevitably had the best thing to say and the most the smartest thing to say were those people, the people that weren't the stars, the people that weren't that, that didn't get the top billing. And I, I think th- and, and I think there's a place for books down the line to take that same approach to focus on, you know, the mechanics instead of the uh, repair shop owner. Yeah, and it's interesting to me that you you technically wrap up the book by about 1989. I know there were some moments after, but yeah. for the most part, uh, the book is about uh, like uh, late 70s to 89. Even then, like there are people who you include comments throughout that like. You know, this is how we used to do things, and I kind of wish we went back to it or we'd change this now. Um, like, we started talking about the Marvin Gaye anthem, for example, and now the anthem mm-hmm. is part of the All-Star game, but it's still kind of flat. Everyone's kind of like, it's the same thing with the slam dunk contest. We still do it. It's kind of flat. It's boring. It's not the same riveting thing when Jordan and, and yeah. uh, Dominique and those battles. You have in Chapter 4, uh, talking about NBA merch, uh, you talk to Sandra Murphy. And she says, she was talking about the Mm -hmm. Salem shirts, those ones with the hand-drawn work. Yeah. And she says Mm -hmm. that um, they really humanize the players. And in response uh, to one of the questions you asked her, she says, everything now is so robotic and computerized that sometimes it makes me nuts. Yeah. And you're starting to see, like, some of the criticisms uh, from some of the people you talk to. Like, they put in these little comments where, like, yeah. So do you feel Mm -hmm. then, like, as the NBA got into the 90s and now into the current era – it's kind of lost its soul a little bit. It's kind of just, it's gone too corporate. Yeah. Well, yeah, it had to be, it, 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 it had to be Sammy. I mean, it, it had, it had to get, it, it had, it, it had to change. It became too big, mm-hmm. you know? And I think, I think the beginning of the end was, was the, was the NBC deal. It's the NBC deal. And then the dream team. And then that's it. Like the, the NBA became so big, it became global. And when you're that big and you have that much more to lose, you can't be as creative. You can't be as, um, oh, you, you can't be as soulful, I guess is the best way to put it. You can't be as entrepreneurial because there's, 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 there's more money involved. And with more money comes more responsibilities. Comes, there comes more shareholders. There, there's, it, it, becomes, it becomes an investment. And when you have people that are invested in you, 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 you have to make them happy. Like, look at it. Look at the NBA now. You have the floor, I believe, for an NBA franchise. I believe is one point five billion. One point five billion dollars. So, the men and women who are who own these teams, they're not owning them for a lark. They're not owning them because it's a fun thing to do. They're not owning them because they want to practice with the players. So maybe Mark Cuban's an exception. Um, mm-hmm. they 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 are investments. They, you know, they are, they are businesses. So you, when you are a business, you can't be fun anymore. You can't be, you can't be rollicking and you might have some of that DNA, but it's distilled because as time goes on, the old guard leaves, you know, and, and the new guard comes up and they have new ideas and, and it can't stay the same. And I, I, am with folks like Sandra and I'm trying to think, you know, other I, I, look, I would love to be able to go to the mall. Well, well, not now because of COVID, but <laughs> I'd love to be able to, to go to, uh, to online shop and like get, you know, a bunch of Salem t-shirts. Um, I hope that comes back soon, but that's not happening. I wish the slam dunk contest was, was just the best of the best. 
and not like some ninth guy on a team I don't follow. Um, I wish the all-star games were legit competitive. Um, you know, I, I wish that the all-star game weekend was an actual weekend and not six days. But the, but the problem now is that there's too much, there's too much to lose. The players make too much money. So they're not going to go full board in all-star game. NBA all-star game is such a corporate event now that it's, it's the corporate Super Bowl that you cannot take away corporate opportunities. If Pepsi wants to sponsor the, you know, the halftime yodeling contest and slam dunk a thon, like if Pepsi hands you a $5 million check, like you're going to take it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the, and the merchandise now is so tied into, I think, fashion and hip hop, which are not static enterprises that it's always going to change. It's always going to reflect on what's, on what's new. So it, it couldn't stay the same. It can't stay the same. And, and that, that horse left the barn decades ago. And depending on when it left the barn, you might say the dream team. I think it's the NBC deal. You know, someone else might say, you know, Jordan's second reign, second line of championships, but it, it's not the way it used to be. And, and, but nothing is, I mean, do, what, what, do you know anything that's the same way as it's always been or the same as it's always been? No. Yeah. Like I, I obviously watched NBA in the early '80s, especially with Jordan's coming up in '84, '86, and yeah. the obvious example, and you use this one in the book too, is the cost of tickets. Yeah, yeah. When the Raptors first started, there was a Sprite section, a Sprite Zone section, and you can get tickets for fifteen, twenty dollars, and that was perfect, right? You can go with yeah. a couple of buddies. You sit up. It's not very good seats, but obviously it's not courtside. But you go and it's affordable, and you can do those kind of things. And I, I interviewed uh, Marcus Thompson, uh, the athletic writer, and he said um, oh, nice. he came here to Toronto for um, when the Raptors were in the championship, in the finals. Yeah. And he said, if Toronto wins, it's going to be terrible for your city just because the fans will get priced out. He said, this is what happened to Golden State, mm-hmm. right? Like, they were playing in Oakland, obviously, mm-hmm. and then they've now moved to San Francisco. But he was like... The diehard fans were all based in Oakland, but they got slowly, slowly priced out. And as the Warriors kept winning and winning and winning, yep. that they got yep. priced out. And it just became a corporate thing, so much so that they just gave up the pretense to just move to San Francisco. And he was saying, it'll happen to yep. you guys with the Raptors. And sure enough, like even though the Raptors haven't made it back to the finals, the tickets prices are like, nobody's getting tickets for like $15, $20 anymore. Yeah. The best seats, pardon me, I've had an NBA game. I've always gotten the only time I've gotten great seats in an NBA game was through some sort of corporate connection. Like, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about this, you know, I've been to, I've been to a few NBA games in my life and I, I would, I would go to more, but it's so expensive. And the three or four times I've had great seats was because I think, I, I think I want, I think I won tickets at one point. Um, my father had like, worked for Mount Sinai hospital in New York. So he had a hookup. Um, yeah, and if you buy tickets now, like I remember going to a Sixers game, like when the when when the process had just started. Um, so there was, I think it was like Nolan Noel and Michael Carter Williams were the big stars. I took my father-in-law to a game, and I think we had like pretty terrible seats. I think each seat was like forty bucks. And you know, and again, like if you're if you're gonna go, you know, I think I went to a Lakers game a few years back, and my wife paid a pretty penny for seats, and we were like near the back of the arena. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the players look like that. But that's how it goes. Well, 
winning is the ultimate solve. Like you can, if you win, you can get away with anything. Winning covers a multitude of sins. Yep, it sure does, and it's it, it's the same thing with with uh, with with tickets because again, there are going to be people who will buy those tickets because they want to see championship basketball. You know, a championship has an aura around it. I have a you know, I'm not a wealthy man by any stretch of the imagination. My wife works. You know, we have a four-year-old daughter. The, if the three of us went to an NBA game, I that's that a second mortgage. Us, that would set us back for yeah, that would set us back for a couple of weeks. And for other for other fans, it's worse than that. Like unless you are making a certain amount of money, you can't, you can't go to the box office and pick up like free tickets for a for a Pacers Hawks game. It has become a major financial consideration for a lot of people. Um, but the NBA, and that goes more to the point about the NBA, how the NBA has changed now. The money, though, is in the luxury boxes and the courtside seats and the licensing agreements and the ads. The NBA can get away with that because people will go to the games. They'll go because it's, it's an NBA game. There's an aura around it. It's special. The same way that people will go to see, well, they won't go now because, again, COVID. Um, the same way people will go see a Broadway play or they'll see, I don't know. Super um, Bowl is the same way too. Nobody really cares about the teams per se yeah. sometimes, right? It's just an event. Yeah. It's an event and it's a place to be seen. And it's, but again, there are people that will go to these games because it's an event. It's special. The same way that, you know, all, you know, you might go, you know, I might go to Metropolitan Opera to see, you know, uh, a wonderful, a wonderful you know, production of, uh, I don't know, Swan Lake or some other, <laughs> some other, you know, uh, musical. It's the super same classic. thing. There, there is. Yeah, exactly. Keep it, keep it super classic as you can tell. <laughs> it's all supply and demand and people, people will go to the games. They will go to the games because it's an event. It's special. It's, it's fun. I mean, it's like going to Disney world, you know, mm -hmm. you, you're, you're, it's an, it's an event from start to finish and people will pay for that, especially if they have kids and that's, I think the NBA's bread and butter is, you know, you're trying, you're, you're constantly trying to court the next generation. Well, speaking of courting the next generation, where can people find you online to talk to you about uh, basketball, uh, about hanging out with uh, half of Kid and Play, hanging out with Hubie Brown and other people? <laughs> where can people find you online to talk about rap music and sneakers? Oh boy, rap music is probably not my best, uh, my best um, <laughs> topic, but. Um, they can talk to me about they can talk to me about a myriad of other topics. Probably Twitter is the best place for me. Best place to find me. There we go. It's at Pete Croata. That's P E T E C R O A. Two T's as in Thomas O. At Pete Croato. I'm on Instagram fleetingly. That's P as in Pete. S as in Sam Croato. Same spelling. P S Croato on Instagram. And at some point, sometime. I'll have a functional website put up. But right now, Twitter is, is sort of my base of operations when I'm not writing or playing puppet with my daughter or making dinner. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, full, it's a full life, as you can tell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and the book, of course, is From Hang Time to Prime Time, and it's out now. So way to go on that. Like It was really fascinating to see how we got to this point. It's mm -hmm. like uh, it's a, yeah. like you have a kid, right? Like if I met your kid at like twenty, twenty-five years old, I've never seen all the stuff that she went through and did all along the way to get to that point. You know what I mean? And it's the same thing with the NBA. Exactly. Like, yeah. It, your kid now is going to like yeah. grow up one day and just like watch the NBA in a couple of years, or she might even be watching now. 
You know what I mean? And she she's getting basically plopped into it, and there's no context. And so it's going to take a while for her to figure out how did this thing get this way? Like, how did it evolve? Who grew no. it? You know what I mean? No, you're absolutely right. The NBA that we see now is this fully-fledged, fully-formed behemoth. Mm-hmm. And you're right. No need for a backstory because, like, it's fully grown. It's, it's, sort of like, it's sort of like looking at the sun and being like, oh, the sun's there. <laughs> you know, we don't really... We don't really look. We really, we really don't look into how the sun got there and and how it's changed and how it's going to change. So yeah, when my daughter gets into the, into the NBA or the WNBA, or you know, or any sports league, she's gonna be she's gonna jump right into it. You know, and she and she's not gonna know. I mean, it's funny. The same way someone talks about Steph Curry now. I'm sorry, we talk about Michael Jordan now. Oh, like a 20 year old or 25 year old might talk about Michael Jordan. Pardon me. When she's twenty twenty five, she might have the same. The same, she might look at Steph Curry in the same way. Crazy. Like he's an historical. Yeah, it's crazy, but you know, it, it's that's how that's how life. Um, you know, I think life turns us, whether we like it or not, makes us all irrelevant at some point. And it's sad, but it's it's true. Um, but thankfully, you know, there's video, there's YouTube, and um, you know, it, it, Steph Curry, I don't think will be forgotten, but he's not going to have the same impact as if my my daughter watched him play live that's for sure Mm -hmm. yeah well that's it we will wrap it up thank you so much the book as i said is from hang time to prime time it's out now at the usual book places so thank you pete so much for hanging out uh we covered quite a bit uh we covered stern's legacy uh kobe's passing right up to uh eventually Curry's legacy and everything in between. So thank you so much for your time, Pete. My pleasure, Sammy. Thank you so much. Yeah, next time we'll try splitting the atom while, while we do this. Um, yeah, this is great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Me as well, right? We're two talented dudes. There's no reason why we can't. <laughs> Yo, that was endlessly fascinating. I am your host, Sammy Yunan. That was Pete Corrado. And the book, highly, highly recommended book, is From Hang Time to Prime Time, Business, Entertainment, and the Birth of the Modern NBA. It's one of my favorite NBA books so far. Like, I've read many, many books, and I can recommend stuff. This is a book that you need to check out, for sure. And tell me, from your perspective, when did the NBA lose its soul? Was it the Dream Team? Losing the NBC deal? The goal of soul, or at least it was, right? When did the NBA lose its soul? Speak up. This is a dialogue, not a monologue. I'm at my pal Sammy for Twitter, Facebook, and IG. My pal Sammy, Twitter, IG, and Facebook. Thank you so much for hanging out with me in the Netflix world. Prime time, yo.